Okay, try it again. We're going to read from 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. John writes, Dear children, the last hour is here. <clears throat> you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the end of the world has come. These people left our churches because they, were never, because they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left us, it proved that they do not belong with us. But you are not like that, for the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and all of you know the truth. So I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and falsehood. And who is the great liar? The one who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Such people are antichrist, for they have denied the Father and the Son. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. But anyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. So you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. If you do, you will continue to live in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life he promised us. I've written these things to you because you need to be aware of those who want to lead you astray. But you have received the Holy Spirit, and he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Spirit teaches you all things, and what he teaches is true. It is not a lie. So continue in what he has taught you, and continue to live in Christ. And now, dear children, continue to live in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Since we know that God is always right, we also know that all who do what is right are his children. So that's from the New Living Translation, and honestly, I wasn't really prepared to read from that translation. I don't like it altogether. I usually like the New Living Translation just fine, but there was something there I'll point out in a second that I don't like what they did with it. Um, and that doesn't mean that we're all going to hell because I read it. It just means that, you know, I don't, I don't like what they did there. But thankfully, we have other English translations that we can read from. So there was a word in here that ought to give you an extra chill instead of just the air conditioner, and that's Antichrist. Uh, you know, when that... that just even saying that word seems spooky now. Antichrist, antichrist. And, uh, and yet, here's where it appears in the New Testament. And in, in common thinking, antichrist is usually connected with revelation. Here's a bit of trivia for you so that you can, you can win this contest. I want you to memorize the number of times that the word antichrist is used in Revelation. Exactly. It's a big goose egg. Zero. It's never used. But often that's equated with the beast or it's equated with uh, the man of sin or the man of lawlessness that's mentioned in 2 Thessalonians. It's the idea that the antichrist is this figure who appears at the end of time. Which actually, although you won't necessarily find that idea in scripture there's some indication that in the first century that that ex expectation was present among people who knew the story at least they would have to you would have to know what a christ is to know what the anti-christ is 
And the Christ is the Greek translation of the, of the, um, the anointed one, the Messiah. Now, the reason that I think it's a fair assumption that they expected some sort of antichrist, and by the way, just because they expected it doesn't, did not mean that it was necessarily so or necessarily true. But notice what John says. He says, um, you have heard that antichrist is coming. So he's saying to them something they already know and expect. They've heard about this. They've heard that the antichrist comes in the last hour. They've heard that this is something that's supposed to happen at the end. Now, John is not confirming that that is or isn't true, but what he's doing is he's saying not only has the Antichrist come, but now you've got many Antichrists. The, uh, the, there's no way to know exactly what all the expectations were of this Antichrist figure. When you take that uh, Greek prefix, anti, and it's, it's the same in Greek, it's where we get it in English, it means against or opposite of or in place of. Uh, we, use, we use the phrase in English, anti-freeze, anti-freeze. What is it? It's against freezing. It's going to stop freezing. So whenever you have something that's anti, it is against or it's opposed to or it's an counter to. It's, or, or it could also be in place of. So we might use the term uh, one that, again, they have it in Greek, but uh, same word, in fact, is pseudo. We use that to mean that something's false. And yet there's a, there's a way to understand Antichrist, not just as one who's opposed to the Christ, but someone who is the, um, the fake Christ or a false Messiah. All that's possible. But there's some indication that they expect that at the end, some sort of evil figure is going to show up. Well, John meets them there with that, but then he changes the perception somewhat. He says, well, not only is there an antichrist, there's many of them. He says, you don't have to wait for them, they're here. He says, it's happened. And now he's talking about the situation that they've gone through, the situation that they've been through. And again, we're getting one side of the conversation in 1 John. John knows something that they've been through, and, and they know it too, but because John doesn't have to repeat what they already know, we only get bits and pieces of it. We're only hearing one side of the conversation. Have you ever listened to somebody's phone call? I mean, they're right there in front of you, and you don't know what the person on the other side of it's saying. But you hear what the person on the phone is saying. And you can come up with some wild imaginations when you only hear one side of the phone call. Later on, you're going to ask that person when they get off the phone, you know, what was that all about? What did you mean when you said this? What, was that? what were they asking you? What was that all about? It's like that Jake from State Farm commercial, you know. And the, you know what are you wearing, Jake? You know, khakis. Uh, but uh, the... We only hear one side of this Antichrist conversation. John is centering them on what the real problem is. He says that they are here. And then he says, they went out from us. Uh, New Living Translation in verse 19 said, these people left our churches. That's eh, not the best translation. He says they went out from us or they left us. He says they left us because they didn't really belong to us. 
Now, if you look at the beginning of 1 John, there's this discussion of fellowship. And John says that he's writing these things. In the first four verses, he says, I'm writing this to you so that, you know, so that we may have fellowship with one another and fellowship with the Father through the Son, and then our joy will be complete. John is addressing the real problem that there are some people who've left them and have rejected them. They went out from us. I think he's trying to say that we didn't send them out or we didn't kick them out or we didn't write them off or write them up. He says they left us. They made the decision to leave. They broke fellowship. And so they did not remain with us. And he's going to use that word remaining, abiding. He's going to use that to talk about fellowship and connection. He says, uh, if, they, if they had belonged to us, he says they would have stayed with us. They would have remained with us. And so John's going to imagine that there's this, this uh, he, he's speaking to them, and he's going to use the, the, the imagery of remaining, abiding, and fellowship. And he's saying that if it mattered to them, they would have remained with us. They would have stayed with us. But something else was more important to them. Something that's anti-Christ was more important to them. And there is, there's a belief at stake, and he's going to mention that. Um, he gets to that in uh, verse 22. The definition of Antichrist there is the one who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Such people are Antichrists. They're denying that. Uh, you know, there's some discussion about what this means. And one of the ways to, to look at this is, first of all, you have the Christ. Okay. Now, the Christ, or the Messiah, and we're going to talk about the meaning of that word. It means the anointed one, quite literally. Uh, but what does that mean? We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But the expectation that there's going to be a Messiah is the expectation early on in, in, among the people of Israel that God's going to send a special selected one, a special anointed one, who will be the Lord, the King. This goes back to uh, Israel's experience with a king. You have Saul, and then, of course, you have David. And David is the one who's especially anointed. Some of the prophets were anointed. And this... And this this anointed figure is their leader. He's their rescuer. He's their deliverer. He, and so in, in um, around 200 B.C., 200 years before Christ, the expectations that there's going to be this, this rescuer king, this delivering king, it builds up. There's an expectation that that will happen. Now, who that's going to be, no one knows. But that there's going to be a Christ most everyone expects that, and Scripture points to that. But who is it going to be? And then you have Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, whose name is, you know, that's his Greek name, but we wouldn't think as much of it if we use the Hebrew translation, Joshua. His name is Joshua. Joshua, Jesus. He's born in Bethlehem. He's from Nazareth. He's born to a virgin. The people of his hometown say, isn't this the carpenter's son? 
This is not the expectation of the Messiah. So some of the criticism of Jesus, some of the, uh, you know, the antagonism towards Jesus from the, uh, from the scribes and the Pharisees is not that they're opposed to the idea of a Christ. They just don't like the idea of Jesus of Nazareth being the Christ because he doesn't fit their expectations. He's not from the right place. He's not from the right family. He doesn't have the right authority. Even Peter sometimes, and, and the other disciples, they have some problems with their expectations. When Jesus tells them to put their swords down, they say, but isn't this the whole point of having a Messiah? Aren't you supposed to be our military ruler? Aren't you supposed to be our military leader? And Jesus says, you don't understand what a Christ is. Now, whatever's going on, uh, maybe a generation or two after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Whatever's going on here in this congregation that John's writing to and in these churches that John's writing to, there's still some concern about the, about the, about the equating Jesus of Nazareth with the Christ. There's a lot of theories as to why that is. Uh, I won't run through all those. Uh, one of them is, and because here... Uh, there is a particular kind of denial. It, it bothered some people coming to Christianity from Greek philosophy that God could exist as a human being. That troubled them because in their worldview, the human body and humanity, flesh, material uh, existence was evil and corrupted. The Jews didn't have that same view. Hebrew, the Hebrew view of the universe didn't, didn't share that view. Uh, their body and spirit are all intertwined together. And that the material creation that God makes is good. But in Greek thought, you have material and you have spiritual. And material is bad, but spiritual is better. And so what you want to do is you want to discard this material and you want to attain to the spiritual and the immaterial. That's better. So you have people who have that trouble, you know, they have that trouble equating that. So you start to see different theories develop. One of those that develops you know, full form later on, much later than John's writing, is called docetism. Okay? And it comes from the Greek word to appear, it seems like. And there's this idea that what you saw as Jesus of Nazareth, as the Son of God, he wasn't really Jesus of Nazareth. It was all an illusion. Okay. Because they don't want to put God's divine being into a material body. You can't have that. Anyway, there's a lot of different ideas that, that build up over that. John says that that's not just an option. That's a dangerous thing. And in fact, there seems to be some break over some issue of belief about Jesus being the Christ. All we know from reading 1 John is that he says that they have denied that Jesus is the Christ. And he says that is not something you play around with. That's not a matter. That's not a debatable matter. That's not a matter of indifference. That's not something where you can say, well, you know, okay, you kind of do this and we do this. This isn't one cups versus multiple cups or something like that. This isn't some indifferent issue. This is, this is important. 
He says, this is at the core. And it caused them to break fellowship with us because we held to that which we learned from the very beginning. We didn't buy into their new teaching or their new wisdom or their new insights. How does he start the letter out? You go back and you look at 1-1 and he says, that which was from the beginning. The one who is the message, who is the revelation. That's what we're proclaiming to you. And what he'll say is, he'll say that uh, if they remain in that teaching, then they remain in fellowship with the Son. And if you remain in fellowship with the Son, then you remain in fellowship with the Father. And if we're all in fellowship with the Son and the Father, then we're in fellowship with one another. But those who've denied it have broken off. They've, They've denied the basis of fellowship and connection and relationship. What's interesting here is in this middle section, um, he, he hearkens back to those first three verses. Right there at the start of 1 John, you've got the seed for everything that's to follow. Um, he says, stick with the original message. Um, no, let's see, that's um, verse 24. So you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. In 1.1, he says, that which was from the beginning, that which we've seen, which we beheld, which we heard. And he says, that's what we proclaim to you. So he's saying, we stick to it. You stick to it. In, uh, in verse um, 24, the remainder of verse 24, he says, if you do, you will continue to live in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. Or some translations say, you will remain Okay, that's just like chapter 1, verse 3, when he says remain in the Son is remaining in the Father. He talks about fellowship with the Son, fellowship with the Father. And then he mentions eternal life, verse 25. In this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life he promised us. Eternal life's mentioned in 1, 2. In fact, if you look back at 1, 2, what he says is, this one who is life from God was shown to us and we've seen him and now we testify and announce to you that he is the one who is eternal life. So John's saying that this this belief, holding on to to this truth, this reality that Jesus is the Christ is so important because it's attached to fellowship with the Son, fellowship with the Father, and eternal life. Which, by the way, eternal life is not just hereafter. It is hereafter, but it's also here and now. When you read John, he talks about eternal life as if it is starting even now. And it is continuous with eternal life. Now, obviously, something changes after death and then the resurrection. But eternal also has something to do with the life that we live now. So it's very important that they remain in the Son. And if they... they, break it apart where Jesus is one thing and the Christ or the Messiah is something else, then they're breaking fellowship with the one who is at the center of the faith and the one who is at the who is eternal life. So let's talk about this anointing because what I didn't like here was verse 27, but you've received the Holy Spirit. Now I bet some of you who aren't reading New Living Translation, it doesn't say that, does it? It should say something like, you have an anointing from the Holy One. Do some of you have that in your, in your scriptures? 
What does that say, Jerry? Yeah. Yeah, the anointing that you've received him. Doesn't mention Holy Spirit. I'm not, I'm not quibbling with that, but I think New Living Translation, I think they took a little bit of a jump that I wouldn't be, care, I wouldn't be comfortable with myself in putting the Holy Spirit in there. He talks about an anointing. One of the things, and there's a whole lesson in this that we could do, but I'll just give you a little snapshot here. What is anointing? I mean, I, don't, I think we need to stop and think about that every once in a while. We talk about anointing. If you look up resources on anointing, there's a lot of emphasis on oil. Anointing oil, anointing oil. And it's almost as if this anointing oil is a magical substance. But what's the root? What's the genesis of anointing? Where does it come from? What's it all about? Because I can't believe that anointing was something that was just invented for this whole Messiah thing. I mean, after all, everything else that they do in the, the, the life of God's people, it has some connection with life, with living. I mean, when they're sacrificing animals, sacrifice has to do with the continuation of life. It has to do with the recognition that life is in the blood. There's some connection to eating there. There's some connection... To the, um, to the erasing of sins. There's, there's that importance of the blood. Even baptism. Baptism has its place in ceremonial washings. There's some understanding of it in, in its place. Especially communion. Communion is bread and it is wine. It is food. It is about fellowshipping. It is about communing. It's not just invented as a symbol out of place that says, okay, this only exists over here. Most of the things that are used to the holy things that remind us of God's relationship with us have some other analogy in everyday life. But what's anointing? You know, James mentions that over in James 5. Well, anointing shows up in Scripture in different ways, and it points to how it might have been used in cultures. Anointing has something to do with health and protection. It shows up there when it says, you know, uh, uh, in James, it talks about anointing the sick with oil. James is not creating a ceremonial anointing for healing the sick. It, It really appears as if there's some understanding that anointing those who are sick is showing them care. It's showing them some sort of comfort. The idea is not that this is magical oil that creates miraculous healing. It's the idea that that is part of the healing process. Um, I mean, in some ways, and I don't mean to belittle it, but I think it's like what we do with, uh, with food or chicken soup. You know, this idea that, hey, this is going to make you feel better. It's comfort. There's something there with comfort. It also makes sense, and I can't, I can't verify this, and I've been trying to look up resources on this. This could be anecdotal. But if it is, it's still interesting. There's the idea that shepherds anoint and that the sheep get all these, you know. And by the way, if you find out that this is bogus, please tell me. I want to know it, okay? Because I hear this, and it's very interesting, but I, like I'm, I'm warning you. I don't know if this is verifiable or not. Uh, but the idea was is that, you know, of course, these sheep, you know, they live out there and the, uh, you know, they get all these bugs and everything and flies and stuff like that. Now, I have verified that farm animals do get flies. I do know that. Uh, I saw that many times. 
So but what the shepherd would do to care for these sheep, because they've got their wool and they get lice and stuff like that, is he rubs oil into it, and that, I guess, is supposed to keep the bugs away, you know, because maybe the it might have some aromatic uh, properties to it that, that keep it away. Kind of like when you use, um, you know, you use those citronella candles, and it's going to keep the mosquitoes away, and you rub stuff into your skin. Why? To keep the bugs away, okay? And some of that stuff is just plant oil and, you know, different different types of natural products okay that makes some sense and it might have been that people anointed themselves to keep you know some of that away or they might have thought that it had some sort of ointment you know medicinal properties um might just make your skin feel better like moisturizer i don't know but the idea that this could be health and protection and then they're moving it to god showing care for us that starts to make sense Anointing is also used, though, to consecrate and to dedicate things. So it does have some sort of religious function. They, uh, Moses and the Levites are instructed to anoint different parts of the tabernacle. And that means that those things are set aside. They're cared for. You know, there are analogies to, um, to everyday life. We, uh, we have to take care and maintain um, the tools that we use, the equipment that we use. Um, if you keep guns, you're going to keep that gun oiled. Why? So it won't corrode. Uh, I remember my dad putting grease on some of the tools. And I'm like, why are you doing that? You're making it all nasty. He goes, because I don't want it to rust. That made sense after that. And when tools are something that you know, you can't, you know, they didn't have harbor freight back in the old days. I mean, those things are special. When you've got metal, that's an incredible find. And so you're going to take care of this stuff. So the things of the temple are special. We're going to take special care of them. Not because they're magical and important in themselves, but because they represent God. And so we treat them with some care, with some reverence. Anointing may also have something to do with hospitality. You'll remember that when the woman comes in and she, uh, she anoints Jesus' uh, head and, and then the woman who uh, you know, wiped his feet, there's that, that idea of foot washing and anointing someone's head that shows hospitality and care. It's a courtesy. It's a sign of hospitality. And, you know, if you're living in, the, uh, in that region and there's uh, heat and dust and dirt and you know, uh, clean water's not just absolutely ready. There's, there is, there's kind of a, um, a courtesy shown in that, that you get that anointing oil to kind of clean up, to spruce up. It might even be perfumed. Um, so anointing plays this part in these cultures, uh, everywhere from the farmland to the uh, banquet hall, where it has this special idea of care. You can see then how even generations, centuries before Christ, there's the idea that the one who's anointed by God is going to be special, that there's some sort of consecration, dedication, some sort of hospitality there. Now, the opposite of an anointed one or a false anointed one would be one who is not seeking God's favor. That is antichrist. And those who deny that the Christ is special and unique, those who tamper with the idea, you can see why John would say that that is antichrist. So he says, you, though, too, have received an anointing in verse 20. 
Uh, not to jump right to Holy Spirit, though I think that does make some sense. But still, I think it's safer to point out that he says, you have received an anointing from the Holy One. So you've received some anointing. We too have been shown a favor. We too have been blessed. We too have been consecrated. And, and he attaches that anointing to the truth. That because we know the truth, we have that special consecration, that special care, that special hospitality, that special healing. Because we know the truth. In verse 20, he says, um, he attaches that anointing to knowing the truth. And if this is consistent with the writings of John the Apostle, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is not only the one who tells the truth, but he is the truth. He he has embodied truth. He is the Word of God in flesh who is the truth. And so to tamper with that message is to destroy the core of the gospel. He says, I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth. I, I, I interpret that to him saying, look, I'm not telling you something you don't know. I'm telling you that you do know the truth. And hold on to it. You're not, you're not lacking for anything. He's saying, you've heard this all before, but I'm telling you, hold on to it because it's that important. And if there was a group that broke away from them and told them, you do not know all of the things that we know. You don't know all the secrets we know. You know, that's going to leave a group with some doubt. Anytime you have a split in fellowship, there's always going to be this moment of questioning that says, you know, did we do something wrong? And on an interpersonal level, if it's just about personal relationships, then yeah, we can all be contributors to a broken relationship. But when it's over the things that we practice and preach and believe, and when one group is not kind about it, then there's going to always be this sense of doubt, like, well, why did this happen? What did, maybe, maybe they know something that we don't. John's wanting to reassure them that when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the truth about Jesus being the Christ, he says, no, you know, and you receive that. It is an anointing, that truth. You've been especially chosen because of that truth. Again, not that they're special or unique, but that that truth is like an anointing. They have what they need. He's wanting to reassure them. He's already told them that he's writing them to give them this reassurance. And here he, he emphasizes, he says, I'm telling you this so that you can be on guard, so that you can pay attention to those who are trying to lead you astray, the antichrists. They're pulling you away from the message, the original message that you've already heard about the Christ. And so he wants them to stand firm. He says, remain in him. You're awaiting his return. Remain in him. This is the reassurance he wants to give them. When we pick up in chapter 3, <clears throat> he's going to start out, again, this isn't to you know, talk of the Antichrist and talk about beware those who will lead you astray, you know, always on our guard. Uh, that's not where he wants to take them. He wants to give them reassurance. Sometimes we hear language about, you know, be on your guard about those who are trying to lead you astray. It makes us very nervous. We all start to get very scared. We start walking on eggshells. We get defensive. We get spooked easily. We're always, you know, 
looking out. Who knows? You know, our terror alert level is up to red at this point. We're like, what's going on here? But in chapter 3, he's going to turn around and he's going to say, look, I'm, I'm skipping ahead to 3.1. It's not in the notes. But he says, look at the kind of love that God has poured out on us. As it says in the old translations, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the sons of God. Lavish. It's a nice word, lavish. When's the last time you used lavish? That's, that's just like overboard. He says, Look at the, I mean, this is an exclamation in 3.1. He says, look at the love that God has poured out on us. We get to be called his children. That's an anointing. That's what an anointing is. You know, when the woman came and anointed Jesus' head, some of the disciples are a bit embarrassed by that. <laughs> I don't know that she should be doing that. You know, they're, they're getting a bit embarrassed by the whole thing. Someone then has to bring up, you know, money. That could have been used to give the money to the poor. You know, I don't think she should have done that. Jesus says, let her be. She's showing an act of kindness. It's love. It's a lavishing. It's a thankfulness. Sometimes that's going to happen when you're worshiping Christ. He wants them to know. He wants them to have the assurance that God loves them because the group that left them may be telling them you know you can't really have a relationship with god if you don't know what we know and john is reinforcing it he says oh yes you can the communion is prepared tonight for anyone who needs to uh, partake of that if you go out these doors to room 100 someone will serve you there uh let's stand and let's sing this song together and encourage one another and then james anderson will dismiss us in prayer